0: Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring.
1: Well, welcome back to
2: There's No Business Like. Uh, I'm here with my friends today, Brian. Hey, Brian Zelmer from Kutztown University in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. Danielle.
0: Oh, hi. It's Danielle Van Hook from the Alden and McLean Community
3: Center. Kevin. Kevin Maynard coming at you from Rock Island, Illinois. And Katie. Hey,
4: everyone. Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts in snowy Midland, Michigan.
1: And I am Josh Benson with the Marion Cultural and Civic Center in Marion, Illinois. And I want to start just asking if there was one figure in your life that you felt was like your first mentor, whether whether it was a formal mentor relationship or not. Like, who was influential in a way that kind of set you on your path through your career?
4: I think that's really tough because I... like i've had many informal mentors or mentorship moments certainly i had college professors that were hugely influential and taught me so much and i've talked a little bit about that before on the pod Um, but i think i want to highlight a relationship i had with um, tom Harriman, who unfortunately um, passed away recently and he was the manager of the playhouse at white lake a couple of managers before me Uh, but tom had a storied career as an actor a theater manager did historic restoration work with theaters. But I distinctly remember a moment where I had just started at the Playhouse at White Lake and I called Tom and said, Hey, I need some help. I have some questions about the theater. He came in and gave me like a 90 minute lecture about the hemp and sandbag system of the theater, which, you know, was original to this historic historic 100 year old venue. And just in that conversation. And then beyond that, Tom instilled such a love in me for historic venues and the importance of understanding the mechanics of it. And that really played a huge role in how I managed that venue and how I took care of her. Uh, And I don't know that I would have gotten that from anyone else other than Tom. So um, I'm so grateful that he was there for me in those moments and had so much knowledge to share.
0: I'm sure that um everybody thinks that their mentor was the best but I'm just going to jump in and say that like mine legitimately was um still is <laughs> uh the best mentor of all time um and I was lucky because he had to uh <laughs> You know, a a really incredible administrator and professor at um, the college that I attended. Um, So the the first mentor that I had that really impacted my professional life and career was Chad Herzog. He was the director of Junietta Presents. um, So he was an administrative role, but also a professor role for our arts management program, which was new. And, uh, you know, in that role, he kind of had to be a mentor. Right. There were so many small medium ways that that mentorship was so important in learning and understanding how this industry works and how the business works. But I think the reason that it was so influential on me was because I truly believed that he believed in me, right? That like, no matter what, somebody like believed that I was going to succeed and that fueled me, in a lot of moments, that I probably <laughs> was probably overly confident <laughs> about my abilities, but like knowing I had somebody in my corner was was everything.
2: That's great. I'm having a hard time because I've had so many mentors now, and 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 the longer I'm in this industry, the more mentors I I seem to gain. I, I guess I'll go back to when I first came back to this industry because I started out as a performer, left, went and did you know the marketing thing with advertising agencies and stuff, and when I came back to the industry, I, I kind of lost touch with a lot of people. And one of the first people that, believe it or not, was a mentor to me, and I don't think they were intending to be or anything, we just kind of hung out, was Pat Hazel. I talked about in an earlier recent podcast, how Keith from Kevin Spencer's show brought me into this, this group, the first APAP I went to, to just kind of hang out. And Pat Hazel was there and we shared a pizza together and we had a great night talking. And, and I didn't even know Pat Hazel's background at the time. And, and afterwards, everyone was like, Oh, that's the Seinfeld guy. And I'm like, what are you talking about? But I don't really remember many specifics other than I walked away from that conversation with like, wow, you know, I, I just want to learn more from this guy. And And I have over the years. Thank you, Pat. I think my first mentor in the industry was a guy by the name of Mike Music, which
3: some of you know, and I think some people listening will also know, and Mike started at Western the same year that I started going to Western Illinois University, like we were just sort of paired together because I joined the organization he was managing. But honestly, Mike gave me a lot of space to look at contracts and to help with the, you know, the, the accounting portions of the things we were doing and honestly taught me everything that I know uh, or that I you know knew especially early on in my in, in in the industry and in my career and like Danielle said I it was somebody who was always in my corner who always wanted me to succeed who was always very supportive who you know was there somebody I could uh, bounce ideas off of whether it was in the organization we were both uh, managing or when I started you know working on my own in the industry he was also the person who recommended me for the board of the Illinois presenters network and just got me involved honestly i didn't realize that we had a mentor mentee relationship because we were just friends like it felt like we were just friends he was also you know an educator leading the organization i was uh helping to to run at the time and it wasn't until you know when i think i was out on my own i went oh my gosh like that is my mentor like that's my first mentor relationship that i had
1: much like many of you my first like thought of mentorship within especially within this realm. And I had no idea why I wanted to go into this industry at that point. I was focused on lighting and technology, scene design. But I was doing a, a scene and lighting design for Les Miserables. And the director of the theater, a guy by the name of Bob Cherkio, he was the executive director for Shrek Auditorium at SIU Carbondale. And he didn't necessarily try and guide me into this part of the industry, but he saw something in me and he wanted to to help me develop it further. And he gave me books and said, hey, I want you to study these. And I want to talk to you about, you know, developing your craft further. And just somebody investing in me, in me like that was something that as a, a young person who had a love for theater, it was just something that really, really impacted me long term. Today, we spoke with Larry Cosson of and Talent. And Larry uh, has a, a beautiful perspective on mentorship um, and investing into the next generation of the arts field. And so enjoy our conversation and uh, listen to what he has to say about mentorship here.
5: Hi, I'm Larry Cosson with Kossin Talent. We're based in South Central Pennsylvania, York County, Pennsylvania, to give some geography, we're just a little bit north of Baltimore and a little bit south of Harrisburg. I started in this industry, well, depending on how you view it, I probably started as early as college because my work-study program uh, at RIT, Rochester Institute of Technology, was working for student activities and booking shows and, and producing shows. Uh, for the college.
1: Now, had you had any interest in the arts prior to that student job? (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, uh, I actually went to RIT uh,
5: to study photography. I have a degree in in photographic illustration from the school. But uh, I grew up in a household that was very much art-centric. My dad and I both shared a love of the guitar. I started playing guitar around uh, eight or nine years old, it was his guitar. Uh, For my 10th birthday, it's one of those like magic moments. Uh, My parents gifted me a guitar, which I still have, and uh, along with my dad's guitars that I inherited when he passed in 2019. And they gave me guitar lessons. So uh, for the eight years from 10 to 18 before I went to college, I regularly took guitar lessons and uh, I can read music. I still play during the pandemic like a lot of people. We all picked up our instruments and played. And what's the most fun is that I have a musical household now that we can talk about. So, And at the same time in high school, a uh, little known fact about me, I also performed theater, both musical theater and and dramatic theater. Uh, I had an interest in all of that. Uh, so I had the music interest. And then at the same time, my dad and I shared a love of photography. And um, around age 12 or 13, Um, my dad built a darkroom in in our house for us and I started taking pictures. My parents feared me going into music. I I wanted to go to a school like Berkeley. I wanted to study music. And my parents had a fear of that um, as a career path, uh, which I laugh about now because uh, they pushed me into photography, which was not necessarily uh, a, a more... Solid career path either,
1: (laughs) Uh, but they felt it was something that I could really get behind. And I think it's it's kind of beautiful that they pushed you from one art form to another art form to be more stable for your life. Right, it's just wonderful. And and my parents were always very supportive of uh,
5: of of that. uh, I, I have three siblings. I'm the youngest of three siblings. None of my other siblings pursued the arts. I, I did. And it is an interesting dynamic to um, have that kind of support when you're young. It's an, it's an important factor. A- anyway, what really led me here was I was running a photography studio. My I had my own studio uh, in northern New Jersey, and I met my wife, Robin Spielberg, at the time. And so, in a lot of ways, when we met, we were both entrepreneurs. We were both self-employed. Uh, Robin already had her own business. And when when, when we met, Robin had just self-produced uh, her first CD. So now we're talking, It's we're coming up on the 30-year anniversary of Robin's... Um, Premier CD, which was called Heel of the Hand, which is an interesting thing in and of itself because of what we're working on now. And um, I fell in love with her. I fell in love with her music. And it wasn't long after we met that we married. And almost immediately, I began touring with her as just the spouse, supportive spouse, but also helping her. And I was backstage and in presenters' offices while. Uh, we were getting ready, she was sound checking and and the like, and the presenters would sit me down and talk to me about this business. And many presenters at that time, a lot of them in New England, but also across the country, uh, there were people in Arizona and California who would say to me, you have to go to uh, APAP. You have to go to Arts
1: Midwest. You have to go to Y. This is how this business works. Let's jump back to your student job, your work-study job in college. Right. And and how did that play out as, a, as a, an initial window into the industry for you? So very first
5: day, move-in day, after move-in, they sent me to the work-study office and they handed me a slip of paper and sent me over to the student activities office. And I was introduced to my boss, which she was the head of student activities, director of student activities, and she sat me down at my desk and we talked about my job and and uh, my hours and everything. And the first thing she did is she handed me a contract for an upcoming performance in the fall uh, for Eddie Money that was going to be held in the gym uh, on the campus. At the time, the school did not have a formal performing arts center. So what was interesting about um, that first day, I was attending a school... RIT is known for its engineering, its computers at the time in the early 80s. That was the moment where computers were just starting and RIT was at the forefront of it. But they were very interested and determined to make the arts part of everyone's education. And, And so that was, at the time, it was the Student Activities Office that was tasked with making sure that music and live performance and the arts we're part of the RIT experience, and and so that first day, um, uh, my boss sits me down and she hands me the contract for Eddie Money and says, I want you to read this contract. I want, you know, to to make notes and ask me questions about it, and then your job is going to be to put together hospitality for Eddie Money and his band backstage, so that was the, the first experience, and... During the, the the first couple of years, RIT had a major budget, and we used the the gym. But we also RIT is a big hockey school, and we used the hockey arena when it was off season for performances. And we we booked you too. We had Chrissy Hines and the Pretenders. I mean, my experience in in that time, and especially having the background being a guitarist and having it was kind of an eye opener. And uh, I had to really pull myself back into my studies and make sure that I didn't do too much of a deep dive into work because it was still really supposed to be about my education in photography. But I I had this backstage experience and this kind of learning curve, which I also felt at the time, I said, this is great, but I'm
1: never going to use it. One, I love that. And this is something that I say on a regular basis is, all experience from your from your life from your career that's right from work outside the industry all of it ends up playing into your strengths in the end and in developing your skill set absolutely with that student work job were you able to be an active part of some of the actual booking absolutely there was
5: uh you know we're talking about the 80s there there was no email there was no internet uh i was tasked with calling the agents you know they would give me the the phone numbers for Um, and, and it was an interesting process because they would say, call William Morris or, or, uh, at the time, uh, the other agencies that exist now were in different, different modes, but, uh, and, and we were calling California, we were calling New York. So the time zone thing, and because I was working about 25 to 30 hours a week, I wasn't always in the office. So there was a bit of phone tag that happened. Um, but yes, I was talking to the agents at the time. Um, and what's interesting too is those agents knew that they were talking to students. I mean, we still have that going on in our industry. And I I think that I learned uh, that it, it does take some time to gain the respect of people. And the other piece of it is when you're 18 and 19 years old, you don't have any idea where your life is going and where it's headed. So so thinking back on it, I had no idea where I was going to end up. And I never in a million years thought I was going to end up in this business. I thought I was pursuing a career in photography. My goal was to land in New York
1: City and being advertising uh, and commercial photography. This was not my goal. You met Robin. You're starting a tour with Robin. And you're starting to have conversations with these Venue directors, venue managers, and where does that take you? Where do those conversations take you?
5: Well, you have to understand that. Robin, uh, after initially producing her own CD, signed an eight-record contract with an independent. This uh, It no longer exists, but it was based in Rhode Island, North Star Music. And I was I started to be part of that process in a very strange way. I was the spouse and being supportive, but in the background, I was part of those conversations with Robin. Um and the other piece of it is, it's really important to understand that you had two people who were both very much A-type personalities, and we were both entrepreneurs. We really felt that um, in order to succeed in our lives, we needed to have our own companies and our own businesses and we that we could control. The idea of creating a touring company, uh, an agency, a, a talent agency, really didn't form... Uh, for a few years. It wasn't until uh, really 1999 or 2000 when we were still living in New Jersey at the time. Uh, We were living in Montclair, 12 miles from New York City, and we made a decision that I should attend APAP. Now, at that time, I had spent three or four years with Robin touring backstage, talking to presenters and starting... There were people that were informally mentoring me, but not really doing much more than spending an hour or two backstage and recommending APAP. So, um, again, you don't ever really forget some of those first experiences. And I remember going into New York Hilton after going through the the Lincoln Tunnel at 6 a.m. to to beat traffic into New York at that time. And uh, I walk into the Hilton... And go get my badge and register. And everyone's hugging everybody else. And everybody knows everybody else. I don't know anyone.
1: And I remember thinking to myself, how am I ever going to do this? And going into APAP purely on the size of it is intimidating alone. Right. But then automatically feeling like I'm outside of something that's existing has to be a hard hurdle to get over. And so how did you move, move forward there? So, again,
5: there was a lot... That, that we didn't know. And I think it's important to understand that there's a lot you don't know and you're open to it, but you put yourself out there, good things will happen. And Robin is someone who has always said that to me. You have to be open to what the universe will give you at any given moment. So we were put in Rhinelander And which is, for people who are listening, Rhinelander, APAP is a huge conference with three floors in their convention center. And Rhinelander is really the uh, first floor where they put the new agencies, the new artists. It tends to be, and, and presenters know that's where the new people are. We were there in a half booth and a surprising thing happened. Some of the presenters who had presented Robin started coming in the booth to say hello. Now, they had already had Robin perform, but they came to see me, and they started to uh, introduce us to other people. There was a handful. We're not talking about a lot of people. And, and at the end of that conference, at the end of that weekend, we went home. I was commuting every day. I wasn't staying at the hotel. We went home, and Robin and I uh, kind of dissected what happened. And one of the things we noticed was the showcasing and the performances. And of course, being entrepreneurs, we said, next year, we want to produce showcasing. We want to work with the other artists. And again, that's a lot. I have to give Robin the credit for that. Robin's drive and determination and also her willingness and desire to uh, not be competitive with other performers, but actually collaborate. And to this day, that's what Robin does. She's, there are many, many artists out there, and uh, Robin's very active in, in the Grammy organization in Naris. Uh, we're, we're both part of it, but Robin is incredibly active uh, in the background, and, uh, and she loves the idea uh, and the interaction with other performers. So the second year at APAP, here we are. We rented the penthouse suite, of we, we actually just booked the penthouse suite of the New York Hilton. At that time in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, it was a different world for presenting and a lot of classical music was being presented. And as it turns out, part of it was to be able to showcase Robin at the piano. Uh, she was already a Steinway artist. She was already had a lot of credits to her name, but there were still a lot of presenters who had no idea who she was. What we did to pay for... Having the penthouse suite for the weekend, which is a huge investment, is that we contacted other artists and said, hey, we're going to do this. Do you want to showcase with us? And one of the reasons that we chose the penthouse suite is there was a piano in the room. There's a ready piano up there. We catered it. We used the the Hilton's uh, catering department and we invited people up and it was kind of an elegant couple of days. Uh, It was fun, too, because... Here we are. We actually we had we stayed in the out, the presidential suite of the New York Hilton every year at APAP. We started producing showcases. Now that was two thousand and one. That was January of two thousand one. Everybody kind of knows what that year and what that signifies. As part of the conversations at the second year of APAP, we were invited to join Western Arts Alliance and go to Arts Midwest and South Arts. There was a fourth conference, the New England Conference. And I registered for everything. I was going to go to all of them. We decided to jump in. Now, again, I was still just representing Robin. My very first regional conference was Western Arts Alliance, WA. And that first, very first day of that conference out in California, uh, I was introduced to what would become a longtime friendship and mentorship, uh, Liz Silverstein. Liz, at the time, was the own, one of the owners of Siegel Arts Management. Uh, that's a company that had been around a very long time. She had worked for the founder of that company. And I'll never forget, because Liz basically dragged me by the nose everywhere, introduced, and
1: she knew everyone, and she introduced me to everyone. That was that was my first conference experience. Was Liz literally grabbing me out of the aisle and saying, "You need to smile and have fun here." She was
5: an amazing woman, and I, I miss her dearly. Um, we became very, very close friends, and she was my go-to mentor for so many years. And she was always open to it. She, you know, she would always take my call, always spend time on the phone, and she—I'll never forget her saying to me. As we as we started to decide to grow an agency and create a uh, and and take on other artists, because of course during that those first couple of years when we were showcasing, uh, and I was booking Robin, other artists would come to me and say, "You're doing a great job booking Robin. Can you do? Can you can you take me on? Can you book for me too?" And it took me a little bit to to figure out that process. Liz said to me, "The passion and the and the desire that you have to book Robin is." key to determining what artists you want to represent, having that focus and that passion is going to help you decide who else you're going to work for, because that's the difference in making a great agent. That's what she said to me. She was the person on that first conference that dragged me to my very first NEPAMA meeting. I had no idea what that was either. So here I am being introduced to kind of the behind the curtain of the industry at that time. And, and again, you know, understanding that Robin and I were making this huge investment in ourselves and our future because no one was, we were taking our personal money and paying for flights and, and hotels for at the, in the first couple of years to just support Robin's career. So I felt, I tried not to put the pressure on myself, but I did feel it of, okay, I've got to find gigs for her. I've got to find um, performances for her. And there were other people, but Liz was a standout. It's the reason that I now mentor, and I've been mentoring people for a number of years. I'm proud to say that in WA 2019, I was recognized and given WA's annual mentorship award. And, you know, it's great to win awards, it's nice, but that's, that wasn't the point. My point is, is that a number of the people that I've mentored now are very successful in their careers, successful agents, very successful presenters. And a lot of them are still very close friends. That's the other thing about this industry. This, in, the, this part of the industry, the performing arts part of our, the entertainment industry, you create these relationships that are friendships, that are bonds, that last a lifetime.
1: I love that you're talking about the relationships. What is the importance of going to the conferences? And how do you approach the conferences in a way that best serves you and your artists? In your business,
5: well, look, we had two years that we didn't have conferences, and you know, because of technology, uh, a lot of us all learned that maybe we don't need to use conferences to book shows, to to create seasons. However, there is a missing element to using technology alone to create relationships. And I'll go back to the very beginning, the first few years in the early. Part of 2000, when I was actively not just representing Robin, but starting to represent a few other artists, the internet hadn't really started. It was just getting going and people hadn't really adopted email. So it was all phone calls. And cold calling in any industry is, it's a nightmare. I mean, all you need do is uh, watch David Mamet's movie, Glenn Glen Glenn Ross, you know, to understand like the cold call and the nightmare of it, because people don't take your calls. The difference is, is that going to conferences and meeting people face to face and then and Liz also mentored me in this, and like not talking only about your artists or only about business, getting to know people, asking about them, asking about their families, asking about what interests they have outside of work. I'm a longtime cyclist. People who know me know that I love to ride my bikes, I have a number of bikes. Um, When uh, I first met Robin, I said, Robin, I hope you understand, Uh, I love to ride my bike a lot. And she laughed and she said, well, I hope you understand, I love to play the piano a lot. And so I would go on these long bike rides while she practiced uh, piano, so it was was a perfect match. But getting to know people face-to-face at conferences is a critical aspect to building your network. You can't build a network by sitting in your office and sending emails and making phone calls. Once the network is built, that can work. And I think those of us, really, the, the success of the last two years was really based on the fact that those uh, relationships had already been built. And it it also leads to another point that's a really important point to make, which is when things started to turn... Um, in the wrong direction in the early part of 2020 in March, and 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 it and and things started to shut down. Um, the relationships that we all had made all the difference in how we handled the fact that all of a sudden that clause in every contract, a uh, contract force majeure that no one really looked at or dealt with. Now we're having a conversation about. How do we deal with force majeure? How do we deal with something that's completely out of our control? I'm, I'm very proud to say I had uh, in 2020, from March through the end of 2020 into 2021, I had about 300 shows that were booked that I needed to move. There were only a handful of shows that didn't get rebooked. Part of it is, is that people who booked the artists on the roster and booked those shows, they wanted the shows to happen. Nobody wanted to cancel or not make them happen. But it was the relationships that I have with everybody and the trust factor that we all built with each other that allowed us to figure out a way to move forward and make those shows happen. And at this point, I think my very last rescheduled show just happened, and I think I'm beyond...
1: Those those rescheduling stuff, but it takes it took some time. Obviously, the relationships are very important at a conference for someone new. How do you start to build those relationships? How do you how do you break that ice? How do you start to meet people? And what's the best way to approach it from a from a person to person standpoint and a personality standpoint? So, for the people in our industry that know me well, and there's a lot of people, they're going
5: to be surprised at what I'm about to say. I am inherently an introvert. I'm a homebody. I The pandemic in some ways was I'm the perfect person for, you know, for a shutdown, like stay home. Great. So I had to retrain my brain and retrain myself to put myself out there, to be willing to stand in a room with complete strangers and shake their hands and say, hi, I'm Larry Cosson and be willing to approach a complete stranger at a party, at a reception and say, you know, hi, I'm Larry. Who are you? And and, and again, the mentoring ship part of this. And uh, I have to admit, I had other mentors before I started in this industry. Uh, I had a mentor who was someone who helped me understand the value of building a network. And also I've had mentors who have reinforced the idea of what I refer to as deep listening. And so sometimes it's you ask a question of a person that's really directed to so the get the person to open up and and then you need to listen to that person whether it's about that person's challenge challenges with their family you know potentially maybe they have a, a parent you know an elderly parent that's going through something or they've got a child that's going through something you know being there for people and listening really does create a bond with people. And and this industry is a human industry. We're not selling widgets. We're not selling machinery. We're working with other people. And we all have emotions and foibles. And we all make mistakes. I'm one of the first to say to someone... I apologize for the mistake I just made. You know, you make a mistake on a contract. You make a mistake on that, you know, on a date. You send an email now where you, you put in, you know, the wrong year date because we're working two or three years out and you put the current year date. You know, there's, we we make mistakes. But being open and honest and transparent with people, I think that just goes a long way in the relationship building. But I go back to the you're new in the business And you're standing at a conference like any of these regional or national conference. Uh, Even here, you know, um, at a conference like uh, Aiba in Nashville, where it's a very broad range of types of people. And I've become friends with folks who run arenas. Now, I'll never book a show, I don't think. I mean, I've never booked a show at an arena. But, you know, there's always the you never know and... Where's the downside becoming friends with someone just for being their friend in the industry? That person went through the same thing that we went through the last two years. And that person is having the same type of challenges in their life. There's no downside to being friends with that person. And I think that that also goes a long way because sometimes you're standing around after you've known someone for some time, that person, you'll, you'll be at another reception or at a showcase or at a performance and that person will have another person come up and they're going to introduce you to someone else.
1: And that's how this thing grows. You've mentioned being open and honest about your mistakes and, and being honest with yourself that you when you don't know what you're doing. Is there a value to being open and honest and transparent with colleagues when you don't know what you're doing about the fact that you don't know what you're doing? I mean, a lot of the colleagues will see it anyway. But is, is there a value to being open about that and being vulnerable in saying, I don't know what I'm doing here and I can use some help?
5: Absolutely. And I will tell you that I was challenged over the summertime. Someone brought something to me related to the industry that I couldn't answer the question about how to go forward. Answering the question about how to go forward with this challenge was not my real challenge. I have two or three people currently that I'm mentoring on a regular basis, and I'm uh, doing Zooms with them on a monthly basis, spend about an hour uh, a month with each of them. But I stepped back from it and realized, who's my mentor? I I I don't have a rabbi at this point that I can turn to, to call and say, I have this challenge, what do I do? And I thought about it for a little bit. And... Um, one of my dearest friends in this industry had just retired, uh, Michael Blatchley. Um, he just retired from Florida State University. And I called him and I said, Michael, I hope you don't mind, but I realize that you are one of my rabbis. I need to talk to you about something. And, you know, here again, he just retired. I, I don't know exactly his mindset on, um, you know, how much he wanted to, like, talk about business. But he's just, in, in, uh, in Yiddish, there's a term mensch, which means gentleman. He is the ultimate mensch, and he spent an hour and a half on the phone with me. Again, it goes back to the value of admitting that you don't know how to answer a question or don't know how to solve a problem, and knowing that there are people in our industry that you can turn to And again, I would say that there are a tremendous amount of folks in our industry who are incredibly generous with their time. And because of that, I do my best to pay it forward. You know, someone calls me, you know, it's hard because we're all short on time. We're all trying to accomplish so many things in a day. And and having a a business partner and a spouse and a a life partner and someone like Robin constantly reminds me that it's important to take the time, if someone calls you asking for uh, your help, that you take the time to give it to that person. If those listening to this podcast take anything away from this about this industry is that it's so important to give each other the time. And I'll say this, there's another piece of that that goes with that. We've all done this and we all know what I'm I'm talking about when I say this. With the amount of email that we get and the amount of phone calls and being pulled in a million different directions on any given day, we all need to have an understanding that if you don't get an immediate response from someone, if a presenter, in my world, if a presenter doesn't call me back or doesn't respond to my email... I never take it personally. I always remind myself that that person probably has some other things going on in their world right now and just can't get to it. And so we all have to delineate, you know, and prioritize what we get done. But I do my best when someone reaches out to me and asks for my help that I try and be there for them. And I hope that other people in our industry will do that for others as well.
1: What would be your recommendation to people just coming into the industry that don't know anybody to find that mentor mentee relationship how, how would they identify and and find somebody that they can rely on or or ask questions of?
5: Well, a lot of it would depend on their circumstances. Now, uh, during the majority of the years between um, 2000 and now, pandemic aside, I would go to conferences and I would sign up. Initially, what I learned from that first experience with Liz was that as I started to go to conferences, I signed up for the New Colleagues Orientation that first um, uh, few times, and I would sign up... um, and ask for a mentor because the conferences give that option. Do you want a mentor? You, and and I would highly recommend anybody new that if they're attending the conferences to go to that new colleague orientation. The other side of this is that as you get more experienced, there's mm-hmm. value in offering yourself up as a mentor, which I have done many, many times at conferences, but now I do that now. Finding a mentor can sometimes be difficult, but that person is probably closer than you think. And if you're an artist, it's probably going to be another artist who's out there touring or working in the industry. If you're a presenter, more than likely, you live in a place where there's a consortium, a statewide or regional consortium of other presenters, and joining that consortium is a way for you to meet and, and figure out, it might take some time to figure out who's going to be that person that you can feel comfortable asking those questions. And, uh, and if you're an agent, same thing. Uh, NAPAMA is one of those organizations that tend to connect agents to agents. So there, there are definitely within our industry, some organizations that can connect you, but usually it's because that person is either figuratively or literally standing next to you and you just have to be bold enough to ask.
1: One thing that I've been studying lately is, and this is more for people who are more established in the industry, but um, reverse mentorship and the value of relationship with someone younger and coming into the industry with fresh ideas, with new ideas, with new thoughts that that causes you to think a little bit differently about how you're approaching it at that point in your career. Absolutely, because we all get we all get settled into what we've been doing for a long time and, and start going along those lines. But having that, having those conversations with someone younger with a fresh take can be incredibly beneficial. As a, as a mentor position for that reverse mentor relationship that you can gain from them as well.
5: It's interesting because I'm currently mentoring a young man who's based in Florida. As most established agencies know, uh, if you're an agent and your name is out there, you're constantly being hit up by artists looking for representation. This particular artist uh, came to me through uh, a, a mutual friend and he initially approached me asking me to represent him, and I, I spoke to him on the phone and I, I said, look, I can't represent you. He wasn't ready in the moment. This is this goes back a few months, six months or so. But I said, uh, I, I think you've got something going on. I think there's something there, and I'd be willing to give you my time on Zoom. We'll schedule a meeting once a month. Kind of, dur- I do it during my lunch hour. I take, you know, 60 minutes between 12 and 1 Eastern time. And he and I have been doing these Zoom meetings and you just hit it on the head. An amazing thing has happened. He is teaching me things. He's in his late 20s and uh, he's teaching me about his view and his perspective on our industry. And he's made me rethink some of the things about how we go forward. And it's also uh, made me think about the whole concept of developing artists in this moment, which is an incredibly difficult thing. Big change in our industry over the last 20-some-odd years has been, when I talk about our industry, I'm talking about the performing arts piece of it and the presenting piece of it. When I first came into this, the focus was not on the box office and ticket sales. The economics were much different. And being a developing artist, as long as you had the talent and you can show that you had the quality to be put on stage, presenters took risks with those artists. Now, coming out of the pandemic, risk-taking is a little bit more challenging for venues, for, for any venue. And they're tasked with making sure that their economics work and their bottom line works. So being a developing artist and getting out there and building a, 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 an audience, building a fan base, is incredibly difficult and convincing Uh, any venue to take a chance on a new artist. It's interesting because I think the public thinks that artists like Billie Eilish and Olivia Rodrigo, those artists just happen. And that's how things work. You know, you can record in in your bedroom and all of a sudden you become super famous. And that's not the path. And the other thing I think what Robin and I have shown, both as an agency and also Robin as a performer and a recording artist, she's a composer, you can have a fantastic life and a fantastic career without being a household name in our industry. And the performing arts can give you just a wonderful journey, which we've had. And that's something that I that I reinforce with this young man that I'm that I'm mentoring right now. Um, and, and, but he is giving me a different perspective about what it is and the challenges of starting right now. And it is a challenge.
1: If I could, uh, kind of take you back in time, right at that point where you're, where you're touring with Robin and you're starting to talk to these venue directors, what one piece of advice would you give yourself about getting into the industry? You know,
5: it's, it's funny because Robin and I are both obsessed with movies and stories about time travel, and we always talk about this. What would you do if you were able to go back and talk to your younger self? I'd go back to my younger self and say to him, open mind, open heart. I would remind myself what presenters said to me. You've got to be open, to the possibilities. You got to be willing to accept no as an answer. That's a really critical thing. You have to be willing to accept no because in my mind no is just one step closer to yes. But ex- accepting that not everything fits for everyone, I think that's you know to to your point of what's the piece of advice that I was given back then by a presenter that was that was a huge piece of it is that not everything is a match. Not everything is a fit. And so I've often thought of myself as an agent as more of a, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a matchmaker. I'm trying to find that right fit for the particular artist in
1: the right place. One last question. What is your favorite thing about the industry today? My favorite thing, I you
5: know this and many people who work with me, you know, over the years, Robin and I have developed... Um, Uh, a roster that focuses not just on great public performances, but community engagement and education. And my favorite thing is attending a performance, young audiences, um, student matinee for instance, and watching the excitement and what happens to these young audiences when they experience a fantastic performance and watching those kids leave the venue and get back on their buses. What I believe happens and what in that moment, what has just happened, we've changed these kids' lives. We have really hopefully made a difference. And you know, maybe it's not every single young person, but even if it's just one of those uh, kids that we've set them on a path that's better than what they were dealing with the day before, that is my favorite thing.
1: Awesome, Larry. Thank you for sitting down with me today. Thank you for your time today. This has been wonderful. I appreciate you. Thank you, Josh.
5: And uh, I'm looking forward to being back on the road and seeing everybody back in uh, at conferences and and being back in people's venues. That's the best part of this.
4: Josh, thank you so much for having this wonderful conversation with Larry. I thoroughly enjoyed. <laughs> I just really thoroughly enjoyed everything he had to say. And uh, personally, you know, Larry's career trajectory and how he came into the industry was fascinating to me and how he has uh, parlayed his passion for the arts in general into his talent agency and working with artists and being a mentor to so many in the field, I think is really inspiring.
2: That's Larry Cady, as you know, you know, he's he is mentor through and through. I mean, when I first joined Pennsylvania Presenters, he was the current president at the time. It was a very mentorship kind of relationship I had with him, which I appreciate and enjoy. And I still continue having those types of conversations with him now. In fact, I just recently had one. What I love about his style of mentorship is kind of what I've talked about in other times is he doesn't just like come with answers. He, he has those deep questions like he talked about in the interview. And he gets you to come up with your own answers to figure out what questions you even ask yourself and work it through from your own thinking. And, and I really appreciate that because I think it means more when they kind of help you discover yourself what the answers are that you need. Because a lot of times we have it within us, but we just have all these like external things happening or, you know, whether it's our internal editor or we can't do that, or we have to wait for this, you know, things aren't perfect.
1: One thing I love about Larry specifically is that like he, I I feel like he can't help but to be a mentor. And so like, even like sitting down with him at meetings at APAP or at other conferences, He's asking really intuitive questions. He's not pitching. He's really asking questions about you and how you are running your venue. They're really intuitive questions that really make you think introspectively about what you're doing and what your venue is doing.
3: Yeah, I also loved his approach to relationships. Where he was talking about, you know, at Aiba, you know, meeting, meeting people and having relationships with people who have arenas. And he's like, well, I don't really have something that might fit an arena right now. Maybe down the road I will, but odds are, you know, he won't. He's like what what's the harm you know he's he's met someone really interesting you know he's created a relationship and i i think that that's really great
0: i had a really cool full circle moment with larry he came um at some point in my undergrad and um, talked to our arts management class about the industry and being an agent and what that meant and what it looked like and it was something that i you know just remembered in the back of my head Earlier this year, um, I was looking to book one of his artists and I called him up and we were chatting, um, getting to know the venue, you know, talking about if the artist would fit. And I, I don't remember how it came up but I I mentioned to him that I had met him before. um, And then in that circumstance, and he just kind of like stopped and paused for a second and was like, you know, I remember planning on on going up there and doing that. And one of our goals was just to, you know, start doing arts management training in undergrad with the hope of, you know, bringing up another generation of arts leaders. And, you know, it was like, and here you are talking to me, you uh, you know, booking one of my artists in your venue. And it is really cool that The amount that we pour into other people does matter.
4: And Larry clearly takes that role very seriously. He's doing informal mentorship and formal mentorship. He mentions that he, you know, formally mentors three individuals once a month where they have scheduled time. And so I think there's value in both of those types of mentorship. And I'd highly encourage anybody that's looking for guidance or just someone to have a conversation with to seek out Uh, those opportunities, informal and formal in nature. There are so many organizations in the industry that do offer formal mentorship programs and opportunities, whether that's your state consortia or a service to the field organization. Uh, And really beautiful things can come out of saying, yeah, I need a mentor. I'm looking for someone that can guide me or I can ask questions of. Um, So I think both of those opportunities that Larry engages with in mentorship are are incredibly valuable and beautiful.
2: We talked about his showcasing and he's always put together really great showcases. When we're done doing this podcast today, I wanna hop in my time machine and go back to see those Robin performances in the penthouse because none of us were around APAP at that time because that must have been incredible.
4: And what a great lesson in taking a big swing. He mentioned they were investing their own personal money at that point in time to make these opportunities happen. And I I just think it's a really valuable lesson in doing what it takes to move what you want to do forward. Something else I wanted to uh, touch base on that I've been honestly thinking a lot about during this kind of pandemic period and all the conversations regarding new people coming in and people switching roles um, that I think has become really important for us to discuss here is clearly through all of these conversations, conferences and the importance of conferences and relationship building keeps coming up in our conversations with various industry professionals. But what about individuals who are in entry-level roles or coordinator roles, contract manager positions, that don't have the opportunity to go to conferences and build their network. I think that's something that's really important that we have to think about as midfielders uh, and executive leaders in our organizations and our field is how are we providing opportunities for people to build their networks, to build relationships. And if you don't have someone in your life or in your organization that is going to advocate for you in that way, how do you do that yourself?
2: That's a very good point, Katie. I often think about, especially in interviewing these people and we talk about conferences so much, I I try to wonder what about the people that are colleagues that aren't going to conferences and how are they getting the information? How are they getting the connections and and the advice and blah, blah, blah.
1: I hear there's a great podcast for that.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but there's a large percentage of people that don't get to go to a conference. And I think one of the things that, that I always try to recommend to people to start with their state consortium or their local or regional consortium, consortium because not only are they much more affordable and sometimes not even any cost to to participate in some of their activities but that's that's the first way as larry talked about speaking to the person next to you they just happen to be next to you and that's the first place you can start as you build that network and meet more people in your region or your state you know you'll start getting more people that know how to advocate for themselves and be able to share that and even tell you how, how they were able to do it. There
3: are also, you know, some really great scholarship opportunities from some service organizations to be able to attend conferences, um, and to sort of, you know, reduce some of those costs. And the other thing I would really recommend for maybe some, you know, people that are in an entry-level position is to just ask their management. Um, You know, a lot of people just assume that conferences are too expensive to attend, but, some leaders and some organizations set aside dollars for professional development. And if you ask early enough, they may be able to plan for that to be able to send you to a conference. So sometimes it's as simple as you know, asking early enough, um, but also maybe pairing that with a scholarship opportunity, saying, you know, this has already been paid for. This is what the organization needs to to be able to do. Um, so coming at it from
1: that approach as well.
4: Yeah. And some um, state grant agencies or like Michigan Arts and Culture Council, they have $1,500 professional development grants that you can apply for.
1: Well, thank you all. Um, and thank you, Larry, for, for giving of your time. He and I sat down at the IEBA conference which he also referenced during the interview, but just getting to, to hear so much of his background and his story was really fantastic from how you develop in the industry to be a mentor like he is in the way that he is. Uh, so thank you all for your input and uh, we'll see you next time here on There's No Business Like. All
0: right, everyone. Thanks for listening to There's No Business Like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Ho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at NoBusinessLike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it, don't worry. It is NoBusinessLike.com. Do I sound out bus I miss every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. I can't believe the guy in the Hawaiian shirt taught you how to use a fork.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was the multiple forks. I didn't know which one to start with. There was no finger food on the menu whatsoever. We didn't know what to do. It was very intimidating.
3: Just used my chicken nuggets. (laughs) Uh...